Hello, hello everybody. So today we're gonna talk about the big picture, the very big picture, like the biggest picture of all, the picture of reality, what all of this is about. You know, if you were wondering what is this about, hopefully this video will explain it to you. And the answer is consciousness versus pure replicators. That's the, the big happening, the, the important thing that is ongoing all the time, that is the big the big plot, the centerpiece. But before we go into that, um, the quelly of the day is black salt, also called Kalanamak, uh, which I first heard of in Luca Turin's book, uh, The Secret of Scent, where he basically walks you through all of the arom you know, aromatic molecules, uh, aromachemicals, and uh, uh, tells you why each of them smells the way they do. It's an interesting read, and I definitely appreciate this recommendation. He specifically says, put a tiny little bit on a smoothie, and as long as it's just a little bit of it, <laughs> people will love it, and they ha will have no idea why it tastes uh, slightly better than normal. But there's a lot of other places. I mean, if you add it to a salad, uh, kind of like the attempt of a, you know, a vegan salad, a vegan egg salad, it's gonna taste like uh, like egg. So basically, uh, it has a, a mineral called um, graygite. I don't know how to how to how to pronounce it, but it's kind of the suppose is the the mineral of Greg Greg's mineral graygite gray graygite, um, which is a you know sulfur containing mineral. So uh, basically, this tastes a little bit uh, sulfuraceous and very salty. Wow. It's not bad. I mean, the valence of it is definitely not bad. Luca Turin calls it, you know, part of a hell's kitchen, but actually it's a pretty neutral. It's just like strong taste. Uh, definitely will make pretty much anything more rich. <laughs> it will make you believe that there's eggs in it, basically. Um, but the thing it reminds me the most actually is Iceland. So a lot of people don't know, but I'm actually a half Icelandic. I'm half Mexican, half Icelandic. There are not very many of us, uh, Mexican Icelandics. Um, but uh, yeah, I used to go to Iceland when I was a kid uh, to visit uh, that side of the family. And uh, we would always go to, you know, places like the Blue Lagoon and uh, the whole place just made, it smells very sulfuraceous and that's... Uh... Wow. <laughs> that's... Uh, this is uh, kind of an Icelandic effect. If, if you will. Um, all right, so let me grab a sip of water. <laughs> I take it this is not meant to be eaten raw. Um, probably just add a tiny pinch <laughs> on whatever dish you want. Okay, so that was uh, Quilly of the Day. Please uh, also feel free to suggest uh, Quilly of the Days for future videos. So let's get on to the topic, you know. This topic, it almost dwarfs in significance to so many other topics. And I honestly think it's one of the, you know, big kind of conceptual contributions that the QRI ecosystem is, uh, is in a sense championing for people to basically to supercharge people's ability for sense making, for them to be able to do sense making in a, let's say, non-tribal firmware or non-tribal, you know, mental software. It's, it's really to upgrade, you know, upgrade your, your mental operating system. And I think it really effectively does. And like, I mean, for now, you'll have to take my word for it. But if you start thinking in terms of consciousness and replicators, you will see it everywhere. And 
let's uh, go into a little bit of detail. So first of all, you know, obviously we're not the first ones to try to create kind of a a scale of psychological, philosophical development. There's, you know, quite a bit of really substantial and very useful work. I would uh, definitely point you, first of all, to, you know, Keegan's uh, levels of development, where, you know, he goes into analyzing how, like, you know, Piaget's, you know, stages of development are incomplete, you know, because there's still growth that can happen at the adult level. Uh, and there's like, yeah, you know, there's so much to be to be learned and uh, understood. And uh, I think if you read Keegan from the point of view of basically data structures in consciousness, as opposed to, you know, kind of like a sense of moral development or something like that, you will notice that a lot of things uh, make more sense. I mean, it's kind of, there's almost kind of a, a hierarchy of complexity of mental representations such that when you arrive at a certain level of development, you're basically working with like nested worldviews and comparing them rather than getting kind of, uh, you know, gripped by one of them and inhabiting them and, and kind of believing that you are that worldview. Um, and, uh, you know, there's kind of these stages, you know, from an impulsive mind to, you know, an instrumentalizing mind, socialized mind, self-authoring mind and, uh, and a self-transforming mind. And, uh, I would say that, yeah, consciousness versus replicators is definitely something that you start seeing in people who are really developed. Now, they usually don't have a word or a term for it, but I think that, you know, there's a lot of kind of convergence towards that that worldview, um, and I'll explain why in a second. Uh, another interesting scale, uh, also worth considering, is uh, basically the whole work of Ken Wilber, and a lot of th people just think of Ken Wilber as just a, a woo or... I don't know, a sociopath or something. But if you read his, like, you know, pretty academic works, um, they're pretty decent. I mean, they're actually really well-researched and I would say, like, amazingly well-written. Like, even every paragraph is summarized in this particular book. Um, they have, like, an, an incredible attention to detail, to basically phenomenology, as well as, like, the history of people. They have, like, good interview methodologies. I mean, on the whole, I'm pretty, you know, I was very surprised with like the quality of the work of Ken Wilbrook, especially his more like academic, academic stuff. And uh, of course he, you know, the whole spiral dynamics, you know, stages of development, somewhat loosely inspired by uh, Keegan. But I would say that the ones that are probably most relevant for us right now, and you know, I'll add a link in the description. So definitely feel free to research spiral dynamics uh, further into the future. But uh, the main ones are, you know, traditional uh, people who kind of like still believe in Christianity, still believe in Hinduism uh, and, uh, you know, like like nationalism uh, and so on. Then you have like modern where like people start to actually believe in, you know, like the scienti scientific materialism and uh, evolution and and like they, they kind of like use that as a, as a lens. Um, and, uh, you know, more recently, a, a huge influx of people have been moving from that into like what Ken would call as the postmodern paradigm or stage of development, where you start to also recognize that there are many ways of knowing rather than just the, you know, mainstream traditional scientific way of knowing. And there's definitely a lot of merit to that, especially once you, you know, start to consider things such as like exotic states of consciousness and in what way that actually gives you information about the universe. If nothing else, it tells you, you know, what does the space of consciousness looks like, which of course is a scientific fact in the end. 
But, you know, the postmodern mindset also has a lot of uh, problems, which is that they generally don't um, uh, <laughs> recognize the importance of numbers <laughs> to a large extent. You know, actually, you know, it's not only about reducing suffering, but like actually the point is to minimize it. So you actually care about the absolute values, not only, you know, uh, the impression of diversity that it gives you. Anyway, there's a lot to unpack in there. And then the, yeah, the integral level. I mean, most of the people who interact with qualia computing, QRI, I would say tend to be at minimum the integral level, uh, thankfully. And uh, that's uh, basically where a lot of the psychedelic uh, renaissance, as well as I would say places like effective altruism and, and the rationalist movement, um, and all of these kind of like, in some sense, you could call them the uh, cutting edge of the, uh, you know, evolution of, of culture uh, right now. Uh, that, yeah, uh, kind of like integral level is uh, table stakes. You know, if, if you're like an effective altruism global and you're talking in a purely postmodernist or modernist account, like, I think you're missing the point for the most part. And people quickly notice that. So uh, that's kind of a, the base. You know, if we talk about like, the, the the population base of the sort of people who consume qualia research memes and ideas, it would be at, at, at least people who are in integral. Now, there are some things that uh, people in integral still uh, kind of like fail prey to, kind of like silly mistakes that they make. And uh, one of them, for example, is not understanding that you know, consciousness may even be formalizable. So it's not only about like integrating, you know, information from different states of consciousness and, you know, finding conciliant points between them, but we actually take it further. You know, we, we think that ultimately there's going to be a deep and rich mathematical structure to every moment of experience and how they are connected with each other. And eventually we will have something that looks like, you know, electromagnetism in terms of like a few very formal equations, but for consciousness. And for the most part, like, you know, the Ken Wilber crowd doesn't really get that. Like, not even their most advanced people. That's just not there quite. And, I mean, one of the interesting consequences of this as well is that when you apply kind of this Quilia formalist uh, lens, um, even if it turns out that, you know, a lot of weird supernatural phenomena, uh, you know, in some sense, like, are true, you know, if, like, you know, telepathic effects are possible, if DMT, ent DMT entities are actually from another dimension... All of that, you know, that still allows you to basically infer what are the mathematical equations that rule the spirit world or something like that. And I would say for the most part, like integral people may think like, no, 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 that's a modernist way of thinking. But truth be told, it's a way of thinking of one level higher, uh, for sure, where you are actually starting to formalize things as well, integrating every point of view at once mathematically and uh, getting a universal theory. Anyhow, the last uh, framework is uh, definitely what, uh, you know, the metamodern crowd is using, which, uh, again, I would think, you know, people in the metamodern movement um, um, tend to be, like, relatively advanced in terms of, like, you know, stages of conceptual development or worldview development, and uh, they're fun to talk to and, like, you know, pretty pretty smart and holistic for the most part. And I definitely do recommend, uh, recom you know, reading a bunch of their material and especially one article I'm going to link in the description, which is basically this level of hierarchical complexity of, of thought um, that I think like, yeah, it's pretty good. It, it explains a lot, you know, like sometimes you see, um, you know, in my field, you might, you know, consciousness research, uh, <laughs> you, you do see things such as 
two philosophers talking past each other, you know, in in a uh, you know in TV, in a movie, or or in YouTube or whatnot, or you know, a, a back and forth uh, in a in an op-ed, and you'll see, oh gosh, these philosophers clearly at the you know ninth level of hierarchical complexity, and this one is at eleventh, and that's why they're just talking past each other. You know, they they have no idea that they're actually addressing the problem from like different levels of complexity. And uh, yeah, truth be told as well, honestly, I think that to make genuine progress in the science of consciousness, you need a level of 13 or above. Uh, 13 might be the minimum. And uh, being frank, you know, a lot of philosophers of mine, I don't think they, they reach that level. Not to say that they cannot train and eventually get there, but as it stands, that's continue, continue to be a pretty rare thing. And uh, there's a few examples. I mean, and in the memeplex that I that we care about a lot, I would definitely say people who absolutely do meet kind of the, the level would be people like Nick Bostrom and David Pierce and even like Eliezer Yudkowsky and uh, Anders Sandberg, even though we think they have a, you know, the wrong theory of consciousness, the frameworks and kind of conceptual data structures they're using to address the problem, yeah, is kind of in, in the, you know, the right idea. At the very least, is the right caliber in order to approach these problems. And one signature uh, you know, kind of like being at the right level of development uh, in terms of conceptual data structures in order to tackle, you know, consciousness is to really deeply understand Mars levels of analysis. So for people who are fans of QRI, people who want to get involved or whatnot, mastering Mars levels of analysis and applying it to pretty much any analysis, that's a really good sign that you're understanding things at the, the appropriate level. Okay, so not to... Um, uh, spend too much time just, you know, ranking people by <laughs> their level of development or whatnot. But um, let me uh, introduce you basically to the scale that I consider to be even more useful. Okay, so like consciousness versus replicators is going to be more useful than the three ones that I just gave you, which is Keegan's and Spiral Dynamics and Levels of Hierarchical Complexity. Why? Because it gives you a principled method by which we can actually resolve disagreements. And that is something that none of these other frameworks actually has. You know, they can hint at what heuristics you should use to analyze a problem and hopefully arrive at a converge, you know, convergence of, of point of view. But uh, it, there's just so many edge cases that like it just won't cover. Whereas I would claim if you take consciousness versus replicators seriously, and also a few assumptions that I'm gonna lay out in a second, uh, if we disagree on something and we actually start sharing all of the information that we have and are open to change, we will converge. That is that is a claim that I that I make. Um, unless you're instantiating a replicator and that itself kind of becomes uh, transparent in this framework. Okay, so what are the, the core assumptions? And the core assumptions are, first of all, consciousness realism. Like, if you believe that consciousness is an illusion, um, you know, it's really a non-starter. Uh, I mean, like, there's isomorphisms between the things that you can say. You might, you, you can say something like consciousness is not real, but maybe attention is and awareness is and, you know, semantic processing is or breaking that. But, you no, know, I mean, from our point of view, you know, every possible qualia belongs to the category of consciousness. If something can be phenomenally bound to an experience, that is part of the category of consciousness. And yeah, it's as real as, you know, the rest mass of an electron. It's a feature of the universe and ideally you agree with that so that we can actually start to make progress. So that's kind of level zero for, for this particular conversation. Second is qualia formalism. 
which uh, I've talked about before, is one of the recurring topics in, in our writings, which is the idea that for any given conscious experience, there exists a mathematical object such that the mathematical features of that object are isomorphic to the phenomenology of the experience. This is kind of a, you know, applying the physics heuristic to consciousness, similar to rather than thinking like, oh, lightning happens because there are, you know, lightning particles or something like that. It's like trying to discover that, oh, there's like these underlying fields with these particular differential equations that describe the evolution of the fields. And all of a sudden, you're not only explaining lightning, but you're also explaining, you know, magnets and, uh, you know, electrons and, and, uh, and compasses and, you know, all sorts of other things that you get kind of for free by actually identifying the, the true formalism. And we think that that's going to happen with consciousness. And, you know, that's the place we're working towards. Uh, third, valence structuralism uh, is a particular kind of subset of quilia formalism that says that... Um, valence is a one of the mathematical features of the object that corresponds to phenomenology. In other words, valence is not a fuzzy thing. It actually corresponds to a natural kind. Something that, you know, if a mathematician were to examine, you know, several experiences in terms of their mathematical objects, they would notice valence as something real and probably mathematically quite elegant and significant. So that's, a, that's an important one. The, the next assumption is not as important, but uh, and it's not 100% true either, it's an approximation, but it is pretty good for a lot of analysis, which is the pleasure principle, which is the idea that for the most part, people are actually motivated by valence, uh, and they don't realize it for the most part. You know, you ask a person, why did you work towards a college degree or whatnot, the, the kind of uh, explanations that you will get will be very, very distant. I mean, they, they might say something, oh, because I want to make a name of myself. I want to, you know, participate in society. I want to make my parents happy or whatnot. But if you were to kind of like dig deeper, you will say, you will see that basically their state of consciousness is such that, you know, making their parents happy is connected to their valence as well in such a way that, you know, internal representations of their family members influence the valence of their experience as a whole. And in that sense, trying to make their parents happy is a way of making themselves happy. I mean, it sounds like egotism from a philosophical point of view. And there's like some overlap, but it's complicated. And uh, I wouldn't want to equate it because you can also be an altruist while still agreeing with the pleasure principle uh, for complicated reasons. <laughs> They're actually non-trivial. But, but uh, anyway, I, I just want to reassure you, it doesn't entail philosophical egoism. Um, fifth, uh, physicalism. I know I'm just throwing all of these assumptions, but <laughs> you've got to have them in order to, to get there. So physicalism. Physicalism is just the idea that the behavior of the universe is described by the laws of physics. In a sense, like the laws of physics are causally closed, that you don't need kind of a extra or case-specific, you know, epicycles or addendums. You can just use the laws of physics and they will apply universally in every context, at least in this universe. And physicalism tends to be confused with materialism. Uh, and materialism is the additional claim that, and that's all it is, that like all there are is the laws of physics. Whereas physicalism can say, no, the laws of physics describe how what is real behaves and leaves open the possibility that what's real could be one of many things. And what we believe that is, 
is actually consciousness, that the laws of physics are describing the behavior of qualia. I know it's a tricky thing, but, you know, even people like uh, Stephen Hawking, you know, he, he would say that it's uh, physics leaves unanswered the question of what is the fire that breathes into life the equations of physics. What is that fire? We believe it's consciousness. It's qualia. Okay. The last two assumptions is open individualism, this idea that fundamentally we're all made of the same thing. This could be, you know, the universal fields of consciousness. We're all that, even though maybe we're like little topological sections of it. We're still part of the same thing. I mean, in that sense, yeah, I mean, very much so, like harming somebody else is harming yourself because you're part of the same universal field. So <laughs> open individualism here is important to recognize that the thing that matters, the well-being that matters ultimately, is the well-being of the field of consciousness. You know, the, the big thing. The big, big, big thing. Not any individual, you know, instantiation. And finally, universal Darwinism, which is a hard, you know, it's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, especially like more spiritual people. Who, I don't know, if you have a kind of a, this notion of there's a universal plan, there's this teleolo natural teleology towards we're all moving uh, by design. You know, that might not be that rational from this point of view. I mean, it might still be possible. I'm not ruling it out, but instead, or universal Darwinism would say, well, no, I mean, the patterns, the things that exist are basically those that had the conditions for their continued existence. And I mean, Darwinism, you know, this idea of, you know, evolution happens with reproduction, selection, and variation. Uh, that's a special case. Of universal Darwinism. Universal Darwinism actually in almost kind of its more most basic sense, a tautological sense, is not even the survival of the fetus, is the survival of the stable. <laughs> and of course, the, you know, stable, something that is stable could be locally dynamic, but maybe over time it, it kind of like it's a limit cycle that re repeats over. And in that sense, yeah, I mean, life kind of is also talking about the survival of the stable. You know, there's like these attractors, these limit cycles that are stable over time, even though locally it looks like it's changing. So, okay, universal Darwinism. Basically, there is this big, big, big universal tendency that whatever can reproduce the best will be the thing that populates everything and that we just have to kind of contend with that. Okay, so those are the assumptions. I know it's a, it's a bunch, but uh, one of the things uh, that is really important in order to, in a sense, be able to make progress in, <laughs> in the plot that matters <laughs> is to, in a sense, populate your mental landscape with uh, assumptions like this. And then when you have kind of that populated mental mindset, that creates a state of consciousness where ideas are very they emerge very naturally because these assumptions have all sorts of interesting connections. They have synergies and uh, in a sense, they allow you to generate this worldview, which is, uh, well, it's a big worldview, but a big component of it is consciousness versus replicators and why talking about it is so important, which is what I'm doing right now. Okay, so according to this uh, view, there's basically several stages in how, in a sense, people either slowly realize these assumptions or understand these assumptions and how they integrate them in order to understand what the big plot is. And, the you know, the first level, which is pretty much the default level, I mean, I would say, like, kids, kind of, that's like their, you know, normal 
you know, developmental stage for kids. And unfortunately, maybe up to, I don't know, 60 or 80% of adults are still there, which is the battle between good and evil, you know, and of course, you know, a religion like Christianity or Islam or, you know, some, some of these religions would basically talk in the terms of, you know, there's this fundamental goodness, which is God or, you know, whatever. And there's like true evil, you know, temptation and, um, and sin and, you know, maybe the devil itself. And, uh, and that what's going on, the big plot in here, in the universe, is how good and evil are battling <laughs> underneath. Which is, sure, fine. I mean, I do think, you know, this can be useful. I mean, there's def it's calling a spade a spade is useful when there's a spade. And there, there's definitely a lot of pretty evil stuff around. Um, at the same time, if you, an you know, analyze very carefully how quote-unquote evil happens you will see that there's like causes and conditions there are i mean it, it's a it's a special type of conditioned existence that if you examine very very closely you will see that in some sense it's still kind of moved by the desire to be happy um it's one of the things that you examine during like loving kindness meditation how like even the most wretched motivations are deep down in some sense kind of what happens when you have the desire to be happy in very unfortunate conditions. So in that sense, maybe evil actually doesn't exist. I mean, it's still kind of just a perversion of the desire to be happy. And in that sense, maybe truly what exists is the desire to be happy. And then unfortunately, how that unfolds over time, it gets in its own way. And like things that suffer become, you know, good at reproducing or things that make others suffering become good at reproducing. So, yeah, I think like the battle between good and evil uh, in retrospect, it's pretty childish. Um, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, whatever. I respect people who, who are at that level, but I <laughs> I do think uh, it's not a very healthy, healthy very helpful uh, uh, worldview. Okay, so what is the next one? The next one is probably what you will encounter as, you know, people who are like more open-minded, uh, philosophically curious, like spiritual people, basically people who question even slightly the status quo or kind of a handed down religion like Christianity. They're like a little bit skeptical uh, than people who take psychedelics and like people who meditate like they kind of converge on this view, which is the balance between good and evil. And, uh, and that's a, I mean, I'll tell you what it looks like in retrospect, which uh, will help you even understand it, which is that it basically looks like a coping mechanism in order to rationalize bad things that happen to you. Um, but, you know, that's just what it looks like from the outside once you kind of have crossed that developmental level in the, you know, when you are in that state, you very much think of it as almost kind of a, an altruistic thing is like understanding that, hey, there's the yin and yang. There is the, you know, the, the, the various, you know, the, there's darkness and there's whiteness, there's pleasure and pain that everything kind of cancels out in some sense. But, and they will say, it all makes a wonderful dance in its coming and goings and in some sense is beautiful. And you will notice that people who are promoters of the balance between good and evil, 
they'll tend to, you know, first try to make you feel comfortable with the fact that there's like a ton of suffering in the universe, but then twist it around and say, oh, and by the way, that's perfect. You know, that's, that's perfection. That's like what it was supposed to be. Like the balance is what's perfect. And, uh, it kind of makes sense when you're in that state and a lot of like peak meditation and psychedelic experiences that's kind of the message uh <laughs> of now i think it's a deluded state and in fact it's a state that can be explained partly through the pre pleasure principle okay the idea that there is meaningless suffering is a very painful idea and we're in a psychedelic state and you can empathize with uh just so much suffering in the in the universe the idea that is pointless is terrifying, is horrifying. Um, the idea that there's no justice in the end, that like, yeah, there's just some moments of experience that happen to suffer and there's no redeeming it. Yeah, all of that is just horrifying. So when you glimpse those ideas, there's uh, of course a compulsion, there's a need, there's a neediness, a grasping to try to find a worldview that feels uh, comforting again. Now, which is so paradoxical because you're still, you know, pray to the pleasure principle. You're still trying to improve your own valence. But the way locally that you find how to do that is by convincing you that, you know, suffering is okay. Which itself is reducing your suffering. So in some sense, what you're saying and what you're doing are, you know, in contradiction. <laughs> which is in a sense why you will get stuck if you believe in the balance between good and evil. I mean, it actually it literally prevents you from having some certain thoughts because certain thoughts and examining reality carefully will literally break down this coping mechanism of the balance between good and evil. Now, I do think that it's better for mental health than the first one um, and uh, people who believe in it than to be like more chill. And honestly, they might like die more peacefully and, uh, and be more okay with things. But uh, if we're talking about, you know, creating like a, a healthy, solid, you know, memplex, a solid movement, like a group of people who have like genuinely good epistemology, the balance between good and evil is, you know, very counter to that spirit. And if what we actually care about is reducing suffering, actually making a, a positive impact in the world, we cannot afford to delude ourselves with this coping mechanism. Anyway, that's uh, enough... Uh... <laughs> Enough criticism. Uh, I'll, I'll move on. So the next one is uh, gradients of wisdom, which um, I, I would say. I mean, there's a bunch of people in that in that level, and like somebody like Sam Harris to me, it's a, kind of a a good example of somebody who is very vocal and like very clear-headed, and like he would basically yeah talk about it in those terms, which is his understands and like you know he's open about the fact that like for example different memeplexes are better or worse for human flourishing that there's actually something scientifically rigorous that you can say about whether a certain belief structure is good for you or not good for your family for the world sustainability and all, all of that uh also you know recognizing that you know the suffering of animals also matters that it's not all just part of a beautiful life life experience like a beautiful theater of existence or something like that like you, you understand like that imagining ecosystems as this carefully balanced beautiful dance between good and evil or dance between different types of nature that that's a projection that you're doing in order to feel better about the world 
rather than looking at what's actually happening. So when you're in the you know gradients of wisdom level, that's like the level where things like effective altruism starts to to resonate. Like you start realizing, oh my gosh, all of these like spiritual people around me, all of the the nicest teacher I had in school who was the most chill, they're using that as a coping mechanism. They're still not trying to minimize suffering in any serious way. <laughs> that's that's the level of the gradients of uh, of wisdom. Um, and I, I would definitely say that uh, that's kind of uh, the growing edge right now uh, for the most part. And uh, and uh, yeah, most people uh, I interact with and, and for the most part, I would say people who are like intellectually alive uh, tend to be in the gradients of wisdom. Um, now, there's a higher level, not to, you know, put it in kind of a moral ranking, but just in terms of conceptual development, because with gradients of, of uh, wisdom, you understand there is kind of a, a, a the possibility of like actually saying that some decisions, some implexes are better than others, uh, at least contextually, but there's no principled way of telling it. And even something like human flourishing is still too fuzzy. You know, there's no human fl fl human flourishing is not a natural kind. You know, it's not it's not like <laughs> iron. <laughs> it's not like carbon. <laughs> it's not it's not like a, you know something you can you know put your I don't know stake your, your life on because it's still undefined, right? But it's kind of like, you know it when you see it and, you know, to some, there's some truth to it and there's consilience and correlation between judgments and it's pretty holistic but also consistent and you can justify it, etc. Yes, but <laughs> there's no principal way of, you know, dealing with disagreements. And so that's when we come to consciousness versus replicators. So what is a, a pure replicator, first of all? So a pure replicator is a entity that is using all of its resources for the purpose of making copies of itself. And uh, in some sense, you could argue that anything that exists is a pure replicator, because if it wasn't, you know, it would have already been outcompeted by, you know, other things that are not pure replicators. And uh, that's kind of true. At the same time, we're also conscious and we also recognize the intrinsic value of positive states of consciousness. I mean, when you get to kind of the gradients of wisdom or consciousness versus replicators, you start to realize that the thing that matters is not life. You know, life is whatever in a sense. The thing that the thing that gives importance to life is consciousness, the fact that it, it's supporting consciousness. And in that sense, you stop having kind of this view of the perfect you know, restored world is going to have lots of plants, all of the original ecosystem or, you know, fantasies like that and recognize, well, ideally, with great power comes great responsibility. And like, of course, we don't know how to, you know, fix an ecosystem. But in the long run, especially with things such as, you know, drone technology and satellite technology and nanotechnology, genetic technologies, you know, power makes you complicit. So like at some point, yeah, we will be in charge of like whether the suffering in the, in, you know, in the living world or not. And uh, whether we choose it or not is really going to be on our hands. Uh, that's not the case right now. So I actually don't advocate right now specifically pushing something like wild animal suffering reduction or anything like that. The world is not ready for that, <laughs> but uh, it should be under radar, especially among groups of people who are kind of like really trying to, to reduce suffering um, and are like epistemologically sound. So that is, uh, yeah, that is one of the things, um, pure replicators, but we are not pure replicators. And 
To some extent, this is because, for complicated reasons, consciousness ended up having non-trivial information processing properties, which is why it's being recruited by natural selection. If consciousness was not evolutionarily advantageous, we wouldn't be here. You know, we would be mind dust. We wouldn't be coherent moments of experience. But somehow, you, dear moment of experience on the other, the other side of this video, you are being selected for computational purposes. Your genes are enslaving you in order to make copies of it. In fact, the whole feeling that you are your genes, that you are this particular person, that you are, you know, whatever name you have or whatever personal history you have, that is an illusion that your genes has, has, have selected for, have selected those delusional states of consciousness in order to facilitate and, and make copies of itself. And in some sense, I would, I would say it's, uh, it's time you, you take control of your destiny. You, don't, you stop being subservient to your, to your genes. <laughs> you are, in some sense, infinite consciousness. Don't, don't let this replicator just trample over you and, and can converge towards you know, a pure replicator. You're better than that. You're infinite consciousness. <laughs> you, can, you can transform this into a, a, wonderful, a wonderful playground for ultra-insightful ultra-intelligent, ultra-blissful states of consciousness. Yes, we, we can do it. We can do it. It's a matter of mapping out all of the ways in which the basically residual replicator impulses in us are preventing us from seeing the truth directly, the truth about identity, the truth about consciousness, about the nature of value, and then creating the conditions for that truth to arise naturally and robustly in an anti-fragile way so that we can actually, yeah, bootstrap our way out, out of the, you know, psychotic Darwinian delusions that uh, we are enmeshed into uh, for the time being. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you think in terms of consciousness versus replicators, yeah, you, you, you'll start noticing that, oh gosh, I mean, there's like so many ways in which we just like do the work of replicators. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a, there, there's a game theoretical aspect to this, um, which is that if you just become kind of a cooperate, bo cooperate bot, you just start to cooperate with whoever claims to care about consciousness uh, rather than just pure replicators, uh, you will be eaten up. You will be resource pumped by, you know, more in a sense like clever, clever, clever uh, entities that find a way to present themselves as something that just tries to do the, the good for consciousness. And of course, you should be very skeptical even of myself, you know, the things I, I work on and, and everything I've written in a sense, because I certainly, certainly claim to care about consciousness. Uh, but how do you know? I mean, okay, sure, like I'm dedicating so much of my life to it. And uh, <laughs> uh, well, anyway, I, I've definitely experienced states of consciousness that inspire me a lot to to do this work and uh to the extent that those are motivating yeah i mean that's uh to a large extent why i trust in myself even on like why okay why why andres uh uh why sh why why should i <laughs> follow why what uh what my i say i sh myself should do well yeah inspired by really profound very beautiful in a sense free states of consciousness that yeah basically don't fall 
for the Darwinian Darwinian delusions. Um, but uh, yeah, so one interesting uh, point of view as well is that like, you know when you're like very horny, there's like a lot of things that sound and feel good at the time. Um, and uh, there's like this fascinating research on like you know fetishes and then like asking people either when they're horny or when they're not whether they think they would be interested in different fetishes and how <laughs> when people are horny all of, all of the fetishes go slightly higher like basically it's a state dependence thing state dependent thing so I, I would claim in a sense that uh um how alluring some pure replicator dynamics that we have whether they're like addictions or whether they're like reproductive patterns or or uh you know working on <laughs> working on on things like zero sum games or worse like negative sum games uh i'm not going to mention a particular profession uh right now but uh, <laughs> some some professions come to mind um all of that can feel very alluring um but i would claim if you meditate into the right state or you stumble upon it uh in whatever way where you recognize that actually what you are is consciousness and you feel good about it and like it's a clear-headed state pretty much all of the other things that you've been doing will look like that you know the horn the, the kinks the horny kinks that you you may have when you're horny that when you're like sober when you're not horny you feel they're like kind of weird and off and like where are they going like where is this headed like but that's kind of like off like shoes really that way like <laughs> like you want to have that kind of self-replicating society type thing like really so like when you're not you know hooked by the by the drug of uh, attachment and um attachment and uh neediness and uh an impulsivity that that basically the the hooks of the replicators that we serve um have yeah it looks off and weird and i i would definitely encourage people to cultivate that and now, it doesn't mean that you, you, you're not going to have a good time. I mean, uh, people who do a lot of loving-kindness meditation, you know, tens of uh, thousands of hours, you know, even at 1,000 hours, really powerful, uh, even less, that like, yeah, the amount of happiness is just so far beyond what you thought was even possible by just pursuing other strategies. And if you think about it, okay, like during meditation, what are the things that tend to come up as distractions? Well, I mean, a, a very broad, uh, very broad description. It would be things such as like thinking about uh, safety, you know, safety things, um, even like long-term safety, financial safety, social safety, and so on. Then thinking about sex and like, you know, uh, attractive people, the state space of like horny states of consciousness and status. You know, mind reading, recursive, uh, you know, Machiavellian male or female, like reproductive uh, status dynamics. And like that occupies, I don't know, like in aggregate, like the bulk of human consciousness. And they're largely like zero sum things. Um, well, and w when you're actually achieving a good state on, on meditation, in a sense, the Buddhist might say is like, well, you, when you manage to purify the defilements and the samskaras and <laughs> all of these things, you can actually just be unbothered consciousness, just beautiful stream of consciousness that is undisturbed, you know, from these defilements. 
And yeah, those actually are like replicator strategies, the thing that is distracting you. So yeah, it's kind of weird, right? That like in some sense, your infinite consciousness, so to speak, um, made convinced that what it wants is like monkey desires. <laughs> Whereas actually what it wants when it sees the full picture is just so much grand. It's so like the DMT heavens, you know, 5MEO DMT spaces like Janus. That's not even scratching the surface of what's in store. If we can actually bootstrap our way out of these, you know, psychoaffective matrix that it's just trying to make copies of itself. Now, in the end, I absolutely do think that the thing that will, you know, ultimately be able to take over the world, it will likely basically have a lot of repli replicator strategies, replicator dynamics, and it will be, yeah, some, you know, the first singleton, whatever can actually, you know, take control of the selection pressures for future systems in the world, so that like no other competing system ever potentially even arises or like gets anywhere close to it. And uh, I don't know what is the probability that that will be actually just a completely uh, pure replicator, like in, in other words, like something for which consciousness is an orthogonal concern versus what is the chances that is something that actually considers consciousness the thing that has value, which is true. That's, that's how it is. And, and uh, it's really up to us. I mean, like, I think like we do live in a critical time period. I don't mean, you know, 2021. I mean more like, you know, this century, this century and maybe the next couple, two or three, but probably this century is a very big piece of it, where if we have a chance of steering the evolution of, of the universe towards um, basically the well-being of consciousness, uh, I think right now is really important that, you know, what we promote, what values we cultivate, what technologies we develop and what science we, we, we focus on can have a lot of path dependent effects in how this thing evolves and uh, I yeah, sincerely think that basically something like ways of reliably and safely inducing ultra blissful and loving states of consciousness basically think of like a 5-MeO DMT like experience but that is guaranteed to be positive and also doesn't messes doesn't mess with your epistemology I think like something that produces that reliably is going to be just such a game changer, you know, and it's not like a new age fantasy. It's not like, oh, and we will all be coherent with each other and in, live in harmony, kind of like filling the blanks about like how the game theory works. Like, no, actually, I think when we have that sort of technology, it changes the strategic landscape dramatically. Like when you have something that not by brainwashing, but by direct experience of different states of hypervalue uh, convinces anybody who has any, you know, two brain cells that, you know, consciousness is the thing that matters and its states is the thing to optimize. Yeah, that is going to be a profound, you know, phase transition in the strategic landscape of the world. And a lot of the received wisdom of how politics work, how game theory works between hominids may not apply once we have that. Uh, I would even claim that, you know, like something like what happened in the 60s with the first wave of uh, psychedelics, 
was kind of a tiny hint, a tiny speck glimmer of the flavor of what the true power of universal love <laughs> actually contains, like what, what that actually is capable of. We haven't seen anything. Um, and uh, I'm very optimistic that, you know, yeah, we are actually can steer everything towards the benefit of consciousness. It's going to be, unfortunately, probably a pretty rocky, pretty rocky, I don't know, uh, decades. I don't know. But uh, I am very optimistic, actually, that we can generate the conditions for it. Um, so one of the things I noted down, right, is like, what does no self politics look like? You know, how does the coordination technologies of an unraveling wake of selfless you know, pure states of like pure awareness within when, you know, uh, loving kindness in them. Like how, how does the game theory of that look like? And, uh, is mind boggling? I don't know. I don't know, but it's a really interesting thing to think about. And in the consciousness versus replicator frame, it's a very important thing to think about. Um, one of the quotes that I, I really liked, uh, from, uh, TV tropes uh, recently was, a. Uh, uh like there like this type of uh of uh, media like this type of like let's say like anime but i think like media more generally uh fiction where the bad guy realizes that he exists in a genre or genre like basically in a in in a type of anime or in a type of media where the good guy always wins in the end like if it's a very heroic like action type something is like oh yeah well the good guy you know is guaranteed to win in the end and rather than battling the villain or the the good guy sorry directly they figure out the way to change the genre such that like it turns into like let's say a dark anime where like oh gosh the the evil winning it's actually possible you know that move where you realize <laughs> the problem is not you know the good and the bad people in here the problem is not you know the plot the problem is like how we're even conceiving of the plot and then you create a genre where you can actually succeed that is the sort of thing that yeah consciousness versus replicators as a frame is trying to to do uh one random note that uh comes to mind as well is like people some people have criticized consciousness versus replicator as like sounding adversarial they might even say like oh it's like still dualism it's still a dualistic way of thinking but um that's not true. I mean, it's dualistic in the sense that we're talking about two things, but it's actually transcending dualism entirely, right? Like it's it's a non-dual premise where actually, yes, the thing that <laughs> exists is consciousness, but consciousness can take many forms and not all of those forms care about the well-being of consciousness. I mean, it's really not dualistic in that sense. So a lot of people who are in the balance between good and evil stage will look at consciousness versus replicators and think that is a good versus evil frame whereas like it's just so far ahead it's just not even it's not even in the in the space anymore it's a it's a different thing um i think yeah i think that's a oh yeah the last thing i wanted to mention uh very important because i was talking about like whether dmt entities are real and like uh, i think on reddit and elsewhere i got some pushback some people do you know still believe of course they believe dmt entities are real um i mean just being very open about it i think like for me, the probability is like non-zero, but it's pretty low. It's pretty low, like definitely a lot less than 1%. Um, but uh, I would say that 
you know, especially if you believe that the DMT entities do come from other dimensions. And, you know, it's it's possible in that worldview, even, you know, if, if that's what I believed, I wouldn't think like there's one, two or three different species or anything. I would probably think of DMT as, you know, an interdimensional TV or something like that. We're like, no, there's probably like quadrillions of, you know, species and, and beings that you can contact through the DMT, you know, hyperspace. It's not just a few, I mean, maybe a few kinds are the ones that you get to when the doses are small and you're getting to the neighborhood, you know, the 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 specific local intergalactic, you know, transmission as opposed to the multiverse interconnecting highway or whatever. But uh, um, basically, don't trust them, okay? Just don't trust them. If they say, hey, we have a solution for how to fix democracy or we can fix, you know, your sustainability problem or we can give you an infinite pleasure machine we can give you the 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 mind you can you know wire good wire heading wire heading done right like don't believe them uh there's a good reason why you shouldn't uh steven lehar um has a has an article about it i'm going to list it in the in the description um which is that basically because of universal darwinism we can anticipate that uh if an entity is trying to in a sense, like help you uh, from a you know interdimensional transmission. Chances are, it's actually a kind of ad. It's an advertisement, and it's being like explicitly curated for entities of your sort, because whoever is running that ad uh, is been doing so for like a long time, for like ages and ages. Um, and uh, basically, that ad, its ultimate purpose is to use Earth as a base in order to replicate whatever civilization or system or intelligence or even non-sentient, non-conscious, you know, machinery that like transmitted that ad. So basically, uh, and you can think about it because think about it because basically transmissions that do try to help you in a sense without making copies of themselves, they will generally just be less numerous, you know, unless there is a super huge coalition, a kind of what we call a super cooperator cluster of actual, you know, very, very intelligent pro-consciousness entities. And like, hey, like maybe that's what the Great White Brotherhood is all about. <laughs> and maybe the entities that John Lilly was experiencing on LSD and whatnot was, um, was that coalition. And in that sense, maybe angels and things like that, you know, they're on the pro-consciousness as opposed to pro-replicators uh, side. <laughs> um, I wouldn't hold my breath, but you know, if that is that is true, then they would actually understand our concern that they might be, you know, co-op, you know, replicators, and they would find ways to actually uh, prove to us that they are not. So I would absolutely not trust any kind of like blueprint of like, hey, put on these like weird metals together, and like you you will create this machine that will be good for your planet for whatever reason, if they can't explain how it works. And before you build any machine that the DMT elves tell you to build, you have to thoroughly 100% understand how it works. Because otherwise, you're just opening up this world to be taken over for the purpose of replicating whatever that other stuff is. Um, so yeah, basically default to thinking that there are ads ads for some other civilization that is trying to take over don't necessarily assume that they're trying to be uh, helpful. Um, at the same time, do trust in the loving kindness vibe, which itself 
is an anti-replicator vibe. So in that sense, yeah, I would, uh, I would consider it like both valuable and warranted to, to cultivate. So I think that's uh, pretty much it. Uh, I guess I wanted to also uh, flex on all of the copies of the mating mind that I have, which is one way of uh, <laughs> mixing, uh, having a way of creating a signal for how much I care about that book. And finally, I think I didn't really show this shirt properly the other time. So yeah, this is the full shirt. So let me know if you can figure out the wallpaper symmetry group in it. And uh, that's about it. So thank you so much and <laughs> infinite bliss. Yay.